black, you're white. Now what? What if I say the wrong thing? You probably will. Who doesn't? But I'll do my best to listen. Maybe if we're humble enough to listen to each other. Maybe if we're brave enough to lean into those difficult conversations. We might. We could. Come up with some answers. Make some real progress. Discover how much we have in common. And appreciate our differences. Now you're talking. I'm David Conley, communications consultant. And I'm Chris Thurber, clinical psychologist. And today uh, we are really excited because our guest uh, has extensive experience uh, working in public service and also uh, in corporate service. And so we're going to really be able to talk to her about a great many things. Uh, we're going to be talking with B.J. Walker. And uh, but before we do, let's just uh, kind of recap our last episode. We talked with Reverend James Winfrey uh, out in L.A. and talked to him about some of the work he's doing. Uh, where, with Urban Alchemy and how they are uh, working to help reacclimate people who have been in prison for a long time uh, to get you know back into society, get jobs, become more productive, and things like that. And so God bless him for that work. And Chris, I was particularly uh, just you know kind of struck by uh, some of the numbers that he was talking about with regard to uh, the percentage of uh, people that were. African American that he deals with, and then the remainder of them being uh, Hispanic, and then uh, or Latinx, and then I also um, really like the part of the conversation where we were talking about, like for instance, where you come from as far as growing up in, in pretty homogeneous society, and how there was a similarity uh, with what he was seeing as well, but just with a different culture or different cultures and, and how there was some interesting difference and simultaneous common ground with regard to that. It was fascinating. And I think one of the things that Reverend James said that really stuck with me was that instilling hope in someone who has not started their lives with a lot and then spent a good chunk of their growing up in prison requires an example. It requires seeing someone who looks like you, who's been through something similar and has been able to access resources and maintain the motivation and inspiration to make forward progress. And it's, mm -hmm. it, I mean, Reverend James is that example for so many people. And he also is working really hard with his wife to connect those folks who have recently left prison with a, a sterling role model and so it's mm -hmm. that was a that was a powerful observation i'd so, like to get him back on to to continue to talk about you know some of that but also what i found kind of hopeful uh in our conversation is just how some of those gaps uh between races can be bridged with empathy and with understanding uh, and with starting, you know, with understanding self and then, you know, connecting with with other people from other you know, backgrounds. And so I thought I found that part of it fascinating, too, and inspiring by the time we got off the, Indeed. the show. Mm -hmm. And so and our guest today, B.J. Walker, has also worked with uh, a wide swath of people in a number of different roles. And I'm excited for you to introduce her and for BJ to tell us a little bit more about the work that she has done in her life and is currently doing, but everything from directing health and human services 
for the state of Georgia to running uh, Department of Children, Youth and Families in Illinois. So BJ, welcome to the show. We're really happy that you're here. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. And we're only kind of barely touching the surface of some of your experience and the things you've done. Um, if you wouldn't mind, just so, you know, those people watching and listening will know, um, just kind of giving us like an overview of, you know, some of your experience in, in public and in the private sector, you know, the things that you're doing now, uh, even. So if you would just kind of give us an intro, who is BJ Walker? <laughs> Sure. Uh, I've had about 40 years of experience working uh, in education, R&D, and in human services uh, in the government. Um, this career has allowed me to work in a number of different environments around children and children's issues, except that I never think about working uh, on children's issues as an issue of just children. Children have parents, they have adults. And so I'm very, very committed to how do we do the things inside government that improves the lives of adults so that adults can take care of children because society and government programs are not intended to care about or raise children. And I, I want adults to be able to do that work. Um, so I think of myself as a person who knows a lot about how you get government to dance? How do you get it to operate? How do you get it to do the things it was designed to do uh, and do them well enough so that people who really need government's work actually can depend on government work, whether that's inside schools or whether that's inside um, programs uh, or services that are being offered. So, I mean, in a nutshell, that's, that's my question. And BJ, That's right fascinating, Marissa. Yeah, you're working, um, providing uh, consultation and executive coaching to, to people. Can you talk a little bit about that work? Here's what I'll say about uh, the work I'm doing right now, which is supporting executives in the public way in, who are inside public systems and their teams to not only do the transactional work, the day-to-day -day work, the stuff you got to do, turn the lights on, make sure everything is running, stay out of the newspapers for bad things happening, uh, but also how to stay aspirational and transformational. Because on any given day, if the transactional overwhelms, then the transformational and aspirational doesn't get done. And so how do you stay in both lanes uh, divide your time, get your team focused, and are able to do both things at once, what people call it, both ends. Uh, so that's part of the work that I'm doing right now is helping teams to understand that in the context of the work they're doing. This much I will say to you, and I say that because someone said it to me once, you can't do the hard work inside government without having somebody to talk to. It just, uh, you can call it coaching, you can call it advising, you can call it whatever you want to call it. You cannot run large public systems in this nation without having somebody on speed dial 
when things start to go awry. Mm -hmm. And it's very important. And consulting is sort of an underestimated value proposition uh, in terms of how do we support public leaders. And as a result, a lot of people don't go into public leadership because you get beat up a lot. You get smacked around a lot. And uh, people don't get how hard it really is to get government to do what you want it to do. So that's the work I do now. Uh, and I'm glad to have the space in my life to be able to do that kind of work because someone did it for me. Well, that's wonderful. I'm curious, that, um, yeah. just so when you say that, just in your experience and, and you're saying someone did that, you know, sort of thing for you, just what are some of the things that somebody who's in public service and finds it overwhelming? Uh, and I know, you know, there's no just probably a short list that would fit everybody, but just in general, what are some things that a person can do to kind of stay, you know, inspired to try and do some transformative things for, for people, their constituents or what have you? The first thing I would say is that you have to have patience with your own perspective. What do I mean by that? Uh, you come to these jobs because somebody thinks you're smart enough, you're, you're nimble enough, uh, you're perceptive enough to be able to come in and hold the reins. And you have to sort of have the respect for yourself that says, I might be smart, but I'm not always that smart. I might be right, but right is not all it's cut out to be. And so understanding and having a balanced view about who you are and what you're doing and, 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 and having the honesty with yourself to be able to be wrong sometimes, to be able to ask people, uh, it's a balanced thing. You can't come in every day thinking, I got this. And yet you have to come in every day thinking, I think I got this. <laughs> <laughs> and, but be willing to pull back just in case that's not true. That, that's one part of it. The other thing is you got to know why you're doing what you're doing. Uh, taking a job because you want a title or taking a job because it's a step on the path, just doing something else. I've never found that to be a very good way to think about doing work in the public sector. You go to the public sector and you need to know why you're there, what you came to get done, and you need to get it done because you're not going to be there forever. The one thing you need to realize is that the people understand that you'll be here for a minute. And but when you're there, you got to make your minute work. And so that means being very clear with yourself about what the mission is from your point of view and being clear that you're watching that mission. You're supervising your own vision well enough that you can expect. Uh, that you're going to get some things done. You can't get it all done. That's the other thing. No way. You're never going to get fixed government all the way. So what did you come to fix? So these are all things I think are important when you take these kinds of positions because it allows you to focus and focus is your friend and lack of focus is your enemy. 
David, you needed to have introduced me to BJ 20 years ago. This this interview is happening <laughs> way too late. <laughs> I, I, I'm only being partly facetious. It's it's going to help me for the next chapter of my career, BJ. I think the things that you said are tremendously applicable to anybody who really enjoys the work they're doing but is either discouraged uh, from time to time or often or feels overwhelmed. So um, so thank you for that. What, what have been your experiences with racism from the first job that you ever held to your your current position as as a consultant, as an advisor to people who are in leadership positions in public service? That's a hard question uh, because my expectation always when I've had any of the positions that I've had, I always hear my mother saying in my ear, you got to be better than, you've got to produce more than, you, you, you have to be superior to in order, one, to get the position and number two, to keep it. So when, some, when, when that's in your ear already, uh, you kind of come to the table expecting a different experience than someone who is not African-American may have. Mm -hmm. you, you don't expect to get the same chances, the same opportunities. You don't expect to hear the same conversation. You don't expect people to expect the best of you. So you bring, you bring game. You bring a game every single day. Oh, that's tiring. That's absolutely yeah. exhausting. Uh, it's and but it is the reality, I think, of being both black and a woman, right? Uh, the expectation that on these two fronts you got to bring an A game every day because if it's not about you being black, it's about you being a woman, and most of the time it's about you being black and a woman. The the biggest thing I see African American women get. In, in roles of leadership is that the expectation that somehow we're aggressive, uh, we are, yeah, uh, we come to the table with a lot of, of, of vigor uh, and people are constantly seeing us, well, you know, you're, you're, you're angry. Uh, no, I'm not angry. I came here to get something done. And I understand that I won't get as much space to get it done as somebody else. Who doesn't look like me? So uh, if you want to call that angry, okay. If you want to call that aggressive, okay. So the the irony of the experience of racism from my perspective as, as a black woman who's had her share of, of, of positions that have asked me to take leadership is that the racism actually or the, the notion that the racism was there, the reality of it, mm -hmm. sharpened my game. Mm. But because I know I'm bringing game, I'm really not playing with you. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I ain't got time to play with you because yeah. I know I'm bringing game. So that, I think, is something 
I wish I could say it was all bad. It isn't really. Uh, I used to play softball and I'm not a good softball player and I never played softball before. I started playing it in my 30s and I began to realize that um, I I begin to realize in, 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 in learning to play that game, the value of your persistence and staying the course and understanding what your role is and understanding that you're being depended on. I, it, and and, and that, that, that has been part, I think, of how I experienced the racism. Uh, there are probably some jobs that I would never get. Um, but any job I got, got a game. It was very poignant last night at the uh, Democratic National Convention when Michelle Obama said, uh, maybe two thirds of the way through her remarks. Now I know that some of what I've just said will be dismissed because I'm black and I'm a woman and it, it just, I was so caught up in her, in in her speech, that I hadn't realized um, until she pointed it out. And there are all these roadblocks to to just people listening, just listening, uh, not even agreeing, just listening. And um, it's it's really awesome to hear you say that you know you bring your A game every time. And I also. Um, can imagine how exhausting that is. Um, yeah. yeah I mean, just, you know, everybody plays has a bad day. I mean, if you're playing in a sport, every player has a bad day. Uh, but the bad days feel worse when you know that your A game was being required every single time. Yeah. You know, the, you don't get the bench time. You don't get to be like, okay, I'm, I'll, I'll take the bench. Uh, and today, you don't get to bench. Mm-hmm. Uh, other people get to bench, you, or you feel like you're looking at them and you're going, they're getting an opportunity to sit on the bench for a minute. But you know that you're not. And so you don't even worry yourself about it because the clarity about it is what you bring with you. The clarity is your friend about that. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise you might mess up. Otherwise you're going to do some things or say some things that are not going to just put you on the bench. They're going to put you off the team. Yeah. And the other thing I think is that uh, it's got to be kind of frustrating to be bringing your A game all the time. And then some, you know, some of those times you're not even getting credit for bringing your A game, you know, like you're being uh, told sometimes even when you're bringing that, that that game is is not uh, good enough for this, even though, you know, uh, what you're doing is, you know, ahead of the curve or or what have you. Uh, let me ask you, when you are coming then to uh, a job like an executive position in public service, and I'm, I'm saying surely you're aware then of some of the things that are against people of color inherent in the system when you're coming to that job, like, like, I'm curious how you deal with that and with the notion that if you start trying to deal with those issues, and, and maybe this never happened, you tell me, um, that people would say, well, 
you're trying to show this favoritism and you get some sort of uh, backlash for it. And if you do, does that is that one of the things or the thing that's stopping a lot of progress with regard to helping, uh, you know, say some of the young kids that are out here get some of the assistance from government that they need? I don't know, David, that it is that I feel strongly that that's a big impediment. I, I think I think the biggest impediment to particularly young people, but people of color, black people, brown people, uh, LGBTQ kids, anybody who's not coming down the narrow lane of being white in America by the standards rigidly set. And by the way, that's a construct that's very hard even for some folks who are white to stand in. But anybody who's coming down that lane, what happens is the systems, the way in which they operate, they operate not in your best interest. What do I mean by that? Well, so if you're if you're trying to get services and programs, you get people to to think of you as somebody who deserves this program and the program actually operates not in your best interest, it says you're not worthy. So you're, you're, you're constantly being told, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. I don't, I can't, I'm not worthy of having that. And then you expect me to act like a worthy person. That's where the, the pain comes. Mm because you've disenfranchised me of my own worthiness by how the system doesn't operate in my behalf, on my behalf, and, and how it, it, it ignores me as a worthy person unless I can fit in this narrow lane over here and I can't fit, I can't fit. I think some of what's going on now is you see a lot of upper middle class blacks are talking about getting stopped by the police. You've done everything that supposedly put you in that lane and yet you don't fit. And so imagine if it's happening to them and what that means. What's happening to uh, young people who are caught up in juvenile justice system, who are caught up in the child welfare system? Uh, the system does not own who they are. It is designed not to own them. And so it, 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 it promulgates an unworthiness that sooner or later comes back in behaviors that nobody understands or scratches their heads about. Why are they doing that? Well, they're doing it because when they went to school, they got put in this lane, unworthy. Uh, when their parents made a mistake in parenting, they got taken into foster care. They stayed there year after year after year, unworthy. Uh, they made us a, a mistake uh, any juvenile is likely to make. They shoplifted. They did something dumb. They went to juvenile uh, court and got sent to a juvenile facility. They don't get the privilege of being worthy. 
And so then we are surprised when they don't act worthy. And so I think that's the real pain of what happens out here. Uh, we've got to figure out how to help these institutions and systems broaden the space within which they can see worthy. Uh, broaden that space. Right now they see it in a narrow lens. They, it needs to be broadened. Uh, the way that a mother acts, you know, I, I just think of a woman who's struggling, you know, and she's, you know, struggling to pay her rent. She got a couple of kids. She's, she's, she doesn't have a real education. It's hard for her to get and keep a job. She doesn't have anybody to take care of the kids. And, 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 and she's struggling. But the way we see her life is through the narrow lens of not, of she's not supposed to be struggling. She should have went to school. She should have did this. She should have did that. I get that. Would have been nice. But does that make her unworthy? And meanwhile, she's looking at herself and going, I know I'm struggling, but you all don't understand Mary down the street. Now she's got some real problems. My problems are nothing. So it's the vantage point we put on people who the system serve and how we define them and narrow the space within which the system deals with them that perpetuates that unworthiness and, and disenfranchises them from living their fullest life. That's my biggest complaint about government and government systems. And racism stands at the heart of that. Hmm. Racism stands at the heart of that. It, 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 it is, it is, a construct that denies access to the space that you deserve. That's it. That's a powerful definition. And I was, no, I was going to say, I was going to ask you about that, about how racism played a part in that, particularly in like, um, you know, some of the politics that goes into that, because like I know of, um, and have heard of, you know, I, I don't know, like, you know, but I've heard of like things that people have tried to initiate or wanted to get done who were in, like, say, the, the position you are in or some other, you know, uh, political spaces. And they say, well, I want to do this to uh, help this community or whatever. And just getting, you know, funding OKs, uh, any of that to get it done, the politics that of people who would say you're unworthy stops and, and thwarts, you know, that kind of progress for those neighborhoods, those people, uh, you know, who would benefit from that altogether. So I was, I was going to ask you about, about racism playing a part in that, but I hear you saying that at the heart of that, I'm sorry, Chris, I cut you off. No, no. Um, that's a great, uh, kind of summary statement that you just made. And I was wanting to ask BJ whether, in the different roles you've had in in public service, have you encountered any systems that, at least in part, are able to to own people for who they are, are able to address them, are in some way designed to be sensitive to their life history and the opportunities that um, they may have had or the access they may not have had? 
I think government struggles to do that. Um, I'm not going to say that it doesn't exist, but I am going to say it's a rare bird. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and I think it's hard uh, because there are a group of people who make decisions about what the space should look like who and, and 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 so you get rules and laws and regulations and 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 consent decrees and a, a whole list of formal ways in which the space is defined mm-hmm. and those people who work in government even when you want to do something different those rules and regulations and restrictions narrow the space within which you are able to work. And that narrowing of the space is what prevents you from being able to do what you're asking. Being able to fully embrace the multiple humanities that present themselves because the system asks you to make every decision through the narrow set of rules, regulations, and laws and other policies that it has put in place, ostensibly to to give everyone the same experience. But see, if I'm more likely to come to the attention of a system because of my race, I'm not going to have the same experience of someone who's less likely to come to the attention. So... Therefore, you've already set me up uh, for this narrow vision of what I could be or could become or what is acceptable. Mm -hmm. What's actually acceptable uh, and explainable and maybe even fixable Mm -hmm. if it's wrong. Uh, Black boys don't get a chance to fix the mistake. They get a chance to go to juvenile justice go through the juvenile justice system. And they're more likely to go through it. Uh, uh, Black families are more likely to get a child welfare investigation. I mean, here is a, this is a really good example of, of, of how a system that's designed to protect children ultimately doesn't protect them because it doesn't know or understand the life or accept the limitations that have been put in place for the families they see. Right now in child welfare, we're moving towards a more prevention framework, but it's a slow walk mm-hmm. uh, because it's, it's just easier to worry about a kid because they're different than it is to open your head and your mind yeah. and everything to a kid and their family because they're different and begin to accept how that difference becomes the platform that they deserve to be walking and talking on. It's different than yours, but it doesn't make it worse than yours. Uh, But that's because we're not in charge of the narrative and we're not in charge of the rules and laws and the people who are oftentimes don't 
get to understand the impact of those laws by the time they make their way down to someone who's being served by a system. Sounds good when you're making the law. Right. But by the time it gets down to the ground, it doesn't act good. <laughs> I'll give you a, a concrete example. Obviously, I'm white, so the example is not from my life. But when I had the good fortune to travel to Australia during a sabbatical, um, my wife and two boys and I visited some boarding schools in, well, all along the east coast uh, of Australia. And one in particular in northern Queensland that serves a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids. And the, you know, the history of trying to take, in this case, British, but white British, uh, the, the white British version of boarding school and graft it onto Aboriginal children is, is a sad part of Australia's history. They have done more in the last, you know, 30 years to address those kinds of human rights abuses and and the you know and like you were saying there at the end maybe well-intentioned or it sounds good to the people who are designing oh, let's you know none of these aboriginal kids are going to school let's send them all to school as if the the model of you know british boarding school without learning anything about these Aboriginal kids would somehow work. Um, and if it wasn't working, it was going to be the kids' fault. And I thought, well, I mean, that much history I knew. And when I visited this, this school and was speaking with some of the teachers and some of the administration, who, some of whom were Aboriginal, some of whom were, uh, you know, of European descent, white Australian, and the principal said to me, so Chris, what do you think is the biggest problem that we're facing right now? And I came up with some, you know, I'm a psychologist and I'm an academic, mm -hmm. so I came up with some, you know, answer that was kind of abstract and, um, but, but talked about the historical uh, misapplication of this particular public service to Aboriginal kids. And he said, well, you know a little bit about Australian history, but that's really not the question right now. I mean, we're serving these kids, but we're we're trying to do it in as sensitive a way as possible. And it's not required, it's optional. But just think practically for a second. And I, I couldn't come up with an answer. And he said, well, we've got a board of trustees that is almost exclusively white that in their in their minds thought what a wonderful thing uh to this was a campus that had been inactive for a couple of decades that uh a group of people raised money to um, rejuvenate and restore and uh, develop as an active school uh, that would be um, free to any of the local kids whatever their background and any uh, indigenous or uh, you know aboriginal or torres strait islander kids who wanted to be there and uh, again to your point bj it sounds it sounds like it should be a movie it's so 
dreamy and romantic and and good-natured and we should all stand up and applaud and the you know but the principal said shoes that's the problem and i and i said you know i've i i said i don't understand because i have sat in already this morning on a few classes and it looks to me like all the kids have shoes and he said exactly and i said i'm i am still not getting it and he said aboriginal kids do not wear shoes every single kid has blisters on their feet because you know the trustee said we're going to get everybody a uniform and it's got this and it's got this and shoes and you know and socks too but the point is if you're you know suddenly i realized yeah it, we're still overlaying this you know it it's you don't need shoes when it's warm and the grass is soft and like there's not a educational reason why somebody needs shoes and you would obviously in a cold climate or if you had to walk on asphalt or something but uh that wasn't the case here and it was just again a small but poignant example for me as a white person seeing you know damn we are still doing it we're still trying to say well here's the here's the system help yourself um go go, go do do all this um d am i understanding that concept is that Okay. Well, I, I think it, I think I would just blow it out a little more. The real issue here is that we are all living within a construct that is inclusive of many factors. Mm -hmm. But instead of us living as if all of us are complex and 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 that there there the constructs that make us who we are have layers we're living in these racial constructs mm -hmm. and those racial constructs limit and restrict our ability to be complicated and complex mm -hmm. and so the, the 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 that I think is is the real issue here. Yeah. So it's it's not just that it's a white construct to wear shoes. It is a narrow construct and a culturally disconnected construct, given where you're standing. Yeah, yeah. That's really the issue, and so. Shoes, black people wear shoes, white people wear shoes, all kinds of people wear shoes, but sh the, 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 it isn't about race anymore. It is about culture and, 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 and your own agency to define who you are and what you do. Mm -hmm. uh, sure, there have to be constraints in the world, right? The question is, which constraints matter and why? And we're not asking those questions. We're simply putting constraints in place because they help us narrow the space, that the, they help us uh, keep people in boxes, and they help us reject some people, uh, people who don't wear shoes, mm -hmm. uh, because we wear shoes. And therefore, that becomes a value prop around who you are versus who I am. Yeah. These constructs 
And, and the, the white construct, the black construct, the brown construct, there's, there's a, there's, we, we use them to simplify the conversation, but it's far more complex than that. You know, it, it, it's just when I remember as a kid, when, uh, kids would talk about going down south to visit their grandmothers and, and so forth. Well, when they got down there, a lot of kids down south didn't wear shoes. They, you know, they, they, they just didn't wear shoes. And, and, and so people, black people made comments about other black people who are not wearing shoes as if not wearing shoes made you worse than somebody who does wear shoes. Ain't got nothing to do with black and white. It has to do with the fact that we're just so comfortable restricting the space within which other people get to say they want to live. Like I said, I recognize we live in a society. We're going to have some constraints, but we've, we've just taken it. We've gone buck wild crazy with it. Yeah. Well, and, and you've, you've drawn into even sharper focus, which I didn't think was possible. Um, why I so detest uh, our current president. Uh, and it is because he, every seems like every word out of his mouth is one more way to, as you said, narrow the narrow the construct, narrow the space within which people can be themselves. And uh, let's hope that will change. But um, David, you were going to ask a question. I'm sorry, you look like you had No, I was just curious. So what are your thoughts on how we uh, how we go about changing that? Like what 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 would you say are um, you know steps that we can do to um, fix it? Vote. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, there's that too. But you know, I think beyond voting, there would still be some policies, some other things that some some different thinking maybe. But I don't know. That that's the that, that's the million dollar question. Um, to change it, we first have to change to change things. You first have to change your mind, right? Um, and so, where is the work in this nation right now to to change our minds about where about how people ought to experience themselves? Let's just keep ourselves in, in the United States. Where is the conversation about how you get to experience being inside of the United States, in the United States as an, an American? What, where's that conversation to change the minds of people so that then we won't make the demands of our legal processes to do things that narrowly limit space. Education is probably one of the things in this country I'm most disappointed about because it was supposed to be the opener. It's supposed to be the level, the playing field piece, right? And where are we with education today? We have somehow so narrowed the space that a public education in your neighborhood, with the folks you live around, a quality 
public education is a is a non-starter. You can't get it done. And we 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 have a number of things that have come in. So what did we do? We privatize it. We we I, I, we we make it so that it's a marketplace. Education was never supposed to be a marketplace. Mm. And it, it and and so now if I'm over here in this neighborhood, it's all about who can get out. It's all about who can do it the, the best in the marketplace of schools that are out there. And anybody who can't gets left over here where you can't get a quality. And it's gotten to the point where you can't even depend on quality being in the marketplace. So even when you get over in the marketplace, you still got to shuffle around. So I'm just disappointed that we're not having the conversation in this country that says everybody deserves a quality education because that gives us a level playing field. We don't, you know, if we could get there, you may, it minimizes the conversation about black, white, because if, if we could get there, we put people on the same floor. There's a floor. There's never a ceiling, but there ought to be a floor. There ought to be a minimum that we all get. And I just recently found out we don't have a, there is nothing in explicitly that gives us the constitutional right to an education, even a basic one, a foundational one. There's nothing that guarantees that. And I thought to myself, that can't be true. This, the Sixth Circuit and just made a ruling around the Detroit schools that the kids in the Detroit schools deserve at least a foundational education, not a quality one, a foundational one, a basic one. And that's because they were not getting one. And the stories about how they were not getting one were horrendous. You, would, you, 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 you couldn't even believe that a school was operating that the, the students were teaching the algebra class because they didn't have algebra teaching. Uh, and, and, and that there were holes in the walls and mold in the school and, and, and no heat and no air conditioning, no heat or air conditioning. So the, 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 we have to change our minds first that as a nation, we want something different. For that reason, I look forward to a new administration because at least I can have the hope that somebody will at least start a new conversation. But it really, I, I don't think we change things until we change our minds, until we change our minds. And then that mindset change says we can no longer tolerate. If you look at the civil rights movement, it was a mindset change uh, that said that, that had blacks, uh, sharecroppers living in Mississippi. And they just said, no, we're not going to go keep going down this path. That's a mindset change. Then they attracted a bunch of people from around the country to join them and to bolster that mindset change. Then some stuff changed. And Mississippi was a place nobody thought would change. And yet, the mindset of those who were embedded in the problem, that mindset change 
attracted mindset change of others around the country who could not tolerate looking injustice in the eye. And they collectively then set a different space which would allow for blacks to vote in Mississippi, a place that's where they never would. So that's where I think we got started. We haven't gotten there yet, so we keep leaping to solutions. We keep leaping to how we're going to get government to do this and how we. You're not without a mindset change. And that's what I was going to say too. It's like you know, like I think this current president uh, deservedly takes you know a lot of. Flack for some of the things that he's done, said, uh, inspired. But there are some things that are happening or are, you know, currently uh, manifested that have been brewing since before he was in office. You know, I mean, like, like decades and decades, generations, you know. And so, again, we're talking about, uh, like you were saying, uh, BJ, the the mindset change that says we want and we expect and we want to make, um, you know, this thing different, particularly with like when I was growing up and I'm, I'm, I've mentioned this before to Chris, but um, there were schools in my neighborhood that are now closed when I go back and, and the closing of those schools has disastrously affected the neighborhood, you know, it's, it's, it's just like, and that's kind of what, uh, on a previous episode we had, uh, John Leggett, uh, was talking about with those neighborhoods deteriorating, uh, things like, like those schools closing when you, you know, try to bust people out and say that those schools and those people in that education in that area is unworthy. Uh, you know, those things have, have gone down. So we do, I, I agree. We kind of need to inspire. Uh, that sort of mindset change, and then maybe we can even get more people into some of these positions, you know, in government to to do some things different. But I I'm, I agree. I don't know that that we can do that from that that place down to the to the people. I think it might have to go. It might have to go the other way. Um, BJ, let me. Just but that must. You. I'm sorry. Oh, go, go ahead, ahead David. I'm sorry. No, no, no. No, I was going to say, I was going to say to BJ, that must make it kind of challenging for you to then, you know, give advice and inspiration to people who are executives in in these corporations and in these government uh, positions. No, No, it doesn't. Really? It absolutely doesn't. Because when you are a leader in government, you have a tremendous amount of influence. Every day you walk in there, people are calling you director or commissioner or secretary or whatever your title is, and they are waiting for you to indicate which direction you want them to move. And and so your job is to walk in like I know where we got to go. And so you can make incremental changes, you can make changes that impact the lives of people differently. And you and when you take these positions, you absolutely have a lot of space within which you can move things. You just got to know you can 
and you can't be afraid of being kicked out is as you do it. So the, the coaching is about you came here to get something done. Let's get that done. It doesn't mean we fix the country, but we shall fix this piece that was sitting in front of us right now. And that is not insignificant because it means something in somebody's life. Somebody is going to get something better or they're going to get what they deserve or they're not going to get what they don't deserve because you chose to exercise your leadership and to open the space up that you're responsible for and do something different. Something's going to change. I'm not fixing the country, but I'm going to fix this spot I'm on. I'm in right now. Mm-hmm. I see that. I you see mentioned, that. Um, you know, that there's no constitutional right for Americans to get uh, an education, and that some municipalities, you mentioned Detroit, have come up with uh, local ordinances or laws. Uh, can you tell us about the work that you've done with Bob Moses and the Algebra Project, looking at education literacy as a as a fundamental human right well and let me be clear so the sixth circuit is the federal court uh that serves uh, a, a number of places and detroit and michigan is one of the places they serve okay so i see actually a suit brought against the detroit public schools uh that the court decided that the kids in Detroit deserve a foundational education. However, it is not precedent, as they say in legal terms, which means it is only about Detroit and it can be used as a precedence for the rest of the nation. So the work that I've been doing over a number of years is, is to support the elevation of two things. One, uh, that in the 21st century, if you are not... Uh, mathematically literate, it severely limits the prospects you have for working, uh, for participating fully in the current economy, a global STEM-oriented economy. You have to be mathematics literate. So the second issue is in the algebra project, the one thing I never knew growing up was that algebra is the bridge that takes you from arithmetic to higher order mathematics. If you don't cross that bridge, you mostly don't get to the higher level mathematics. And so the algebra becomes a civil rights issue. It's like if you don't have the vote, if they don't vote and you're not participating in the democracy, if you don't have the algebra, you're not going to participate in the higher level mathematics. Too many of us in my generation met that beast and it killed, it slayed us. Mm. You know, when we got to college, we were going to be doctors and engineers and whatever. And we wound up being something totally different because we did not have the literacy that was needed to mm. into those professions to take the train through calculus and all the higher level mathematics. So that's what we've been doing is working on bringing algebra to kids who are not going to get the algebra they need. Uh, Attached to that, however, has become a conversation about 
quality education as a civil right, as a constitutional right. If we, if the country, if the federal government doesn't stand behind this, then we're at the mercy of all the individual jurisdictions. And some jurisdictions have plenty of money because property taxes are the major funder of schools. So you live in a great property tax district, that then you, your kids are going to have access to a high quality school. You live in a poor tax district, your kids are not going to, for the most part, have access to a quality school. And so these things now have become a, a, a broader platform around education, quality education as a constitutional right. But in the 21st century, that must include math literacy. Mm -hmm. If you're going to participate at if you're going to have no limitations on what you can do, even to the point of not even going to college, leaving high school and going into trades, you need the mathematics mm -hmm. because all of the machinery nowadays is computer based. And to operate on those computer based systems, you've got to have the mathematics. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to step one day foot in a college. But you're still not going to be able to work in these professions where mathematics is the baseline. Mm -hmm. There's a kid who goes to a very high quality high school where there's four years of high quality mathematics, starting with algebra in the ninth grade. Or maybe they had algebra in the eighth grade and they jump right on into the higher level stuff. They step out of high school and they step into a $75,000 a year job where they're not going to be trained and apprenticed to work in these industries. Hmm. It, it, we've got to do something. And in a global economy, people take their factories and their industries to other parts of the world. Right. Where they're doing a lot better job teaching kids to be mathematically literate. So it, it's, it's a serious issue. And, and, and it's, we really do have to convince people because most people believe that, well, you know, everybody can't do math. I couldn't do math. Everybody can't do math. We, 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 we would never say everybody can't read, mm -hmm. but we are quick to say that everybody can't do math, but that's not true. Everybody is not being taught the mathematics they need to participate at the level that our 21st century economy requires. That's, a, that's an issue of, and, and it does translate back to a black-white issue often. It translates back to that because the schools who mostly get left behind are black and brown schools. And increasingly, we're beginning to understand, however, poor schools in rural white areas as well. So the construct of black-white hides a mirror, a, a bunch of other constructs that are about class, ethnicity, uh, culture, uh, choice, uh, uh, identity, gender identity. It hides a, a wealth of things, and we've got to unpack them. Yeah. We're always going to be leaving somebody behind, uh, even as we address just the simple black-white 
construct. The black-white construct is a door to this myriad of other uh, ways in which we exclude and don't include others. I know we're getting close on time. I want to I want to ask uh, one question that I'm, I'm just listening to you and I'm just kind of curious about. And I mean this for, I guess, you know, white people as well as black people. Just when I'm hearing you talk, there's a lot about what needs to happen. And I know as black people, we probably feel like, yeah, we we want it to happen, you know, like now and to put us into um, like more level plan field, job opportunity wise, politics wise uh, and all of that. But just with all of this, do you think, I don't know, do you think that everybody is ready for this in a way that it seems like it's a lot of work that people, painful work that people are going to have to do to undo, even under the best of circumstances, like not even talking about, uh, you know, Klansmen and, and, you know, black people where they bring crosses in there. I'm just talking about just just your average black person, white person. Just how ready do you think we are to get together and fix these problems, you know, and in... And, and come together in this way? I guess that's a question for both of you. Um, I don't know that we're ready. Uh, converse, that, I guess I go back to, that's why I, I think if your mind's not ready, it's hard to have an actionable conversation about anti-racism. I mean, a, pe- a lot of people are having conversations about it, but they, they're, they're more just blah, blah, blah. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're putting the language out there. But the conversation, a real conversation about it, a mindset change has to be attached to a behavioral change. And so, and I don't think you do that all at once. I think mindset changes and increments and and bits and pieces and different experiences require you to think differently about an an issue and then therefore act differently Mm -hmm. because of it. My fear is we're going to have a lot of conversations without any behavior change. But protests are good because they open up everybody's thinking. But after we finish protesting, we still got to get to a table and make something different happen. Uh, You know, we can protest. Uh, One thing that's not being protested, the fact that banks don't invest in black communities. Mm. Nobody's protesting that. And so even if we start protesting it, I still need a bank to do something different, to, to, to fund things differently. And so how do I get there? That That is going to be hard because who's it, 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 it's going to require different behaviors and it's going to require different leadership. You can't run a bank that doesn't make loans in black communities and profess to be anti-racist. But 
I'm, I'm sure there's some out there. Well, I, I think that the, for me as a white person reading Ibram Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, was transformative in the way that you're describing, VJ. It's not enough for non-people of color or white people to say, well, I don't burn crosses and I'm not a member of the KKK. So like I'm doing my part <laughs> by not, you know, actively persecuting people. And it's, it's so much more than that. And to your point, if the CE, the white CEO of a big bank says, okay, after reading this book and realizing that I need to take an active role in creating this level playing field, you know, to which David was referring, uh, what am I guilty of by omission or what am I not doing that I could be doing? And, you know, I feel like one of the things I'll always remember about this conversation is what you said, BJ, about well-intentioned people can create laws or programs. And if there's not a mindset change first, you're not going to get durable change, no matter how well-designed the program is. But I also feel that, you know, something else you said just a minute ago about the importance of action. And I really feel that's where we're getting stuck right now. And we're all, I mean, I obviously, I, I'm not speaking for all white people. So I'll just say where, where I used to be stuck and I'm still getting unstuck is in thinking about what I can do. So as a, as a teacher, as a psychologist, as a resident of New Hampshire, as a father, um, as somebody who's married to an immigrant, um, all these different parts of my identity, what can I bring to bear personally and professionally that will, uh, you know, create positive change? My motivation isn't, um, well, I'm going to do this because uh, it's like virtuous or something. Uh, so, I, I, I mean, people like to appeal to sort of, I don't know, higher order principles. But what I think motivates action on the ground is much more palpable and that is we you know we elevate one another when we contribute to uh, another person's well-being like it's good for my soul it's good for somebody else's soul and that was something that as david referred to um, one of our prior guests john leggett was talking about community policing and how that needs to happen more because relationships are are so fundamental to to change so um, i hope that people listening will think about you know reading kendy's book if they haven't about action they could take uh and to your point engage in conversations like david and i are trying to model that just increase insight a little bit at a time and help people see uh the problem of anti-black racism isn't something that we can just throw money at or throw a program at. Uh, we got to first uh, do some inside work before we start 
you know, creating, but it, it requires action. Yeah, you look around the country, one of the, and, and you, well, you just look on LinkedIn. Every day, there's at least two new uh, diversity and inclusion directors at major corporations who are African-American. Uh, but then when you, you say to yourself, is that the, the response? Is that where the big decisions get made? If you're a bank about how you put money out there and what factors you use to determine it, who's going to get what money and how, is, 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 it's not at the diversity and inclusion officer. That person is, has got a shovel and a hard ground. So how do you get the ground soft enough uh, that you don't need a diversity yeah. officer. Uh, and I'm afraid that we're going to get um, these sort of not very robust re reactionary things that say that people say, well, we, we did this or we did that. But the, the ground needs to be worked. Mm -hmm. And and if in order for you to work hard soil, hard ground, you're, you have to really be determined to do it. Yeah. Your mind has to be, I'm going to do this. And, and, and I'm not sure that we don't have too many easy ways to get out of it. And, uh, and I would hope that we can find a way uh, to combine mindset change with behavior change and that we'd get leaders around the country who are leading large corporations, who are leading large organizations, who are who have big voice, the media, for one thing, to talk about this differently rather than now on NPR sometimes they'll substitute out a black face or a black voice. Well, where were these people six months ago? Eight months ago, yeah. they didn't just become journalists. They were always journalists. Yeah. On your program. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, it, we, we're reactionary, and we need to start getting very grounded around our, our thinking and our behaviors, and and leaders have to challenge that. Uh, it's it's we've got a long road to go down. And um, and it's it's going to be rough. It's going to be difficult. Yeah. I wish I could be more optimistic. All right. Well, listen. Uh, we are uh, out of time, but we have had a wonderful conversation. Uh, I've enjoyed all of your insights and uh, got a lot of great takeaways. And I'll be pondering uh, more about that mindset change. And so. Uh, I thank you, and you know we definitely want to have you back because I always feel like we just start, you know, really kind of scratching the surface of some of these things, and and you know there's always an opportunity to to delve in deeper. But um, but you know I imagine we will as we rotate through, and we will uh, hopefully be able to continue uh, to have the conversation that inspires the action. I think having the conversation. And some of these things we were talking about are 
are good, but you know, if you're gonna change your your eating habits, just putting lettuce on your burger doesn't do it. You're gonna have to <laughs> you're gonna have to change the entire diet, you know. So and it's gonna have to be just the way you start, you know, doing things now, just uh eating that one piece of lettuce on on this burger won't change it. So um so thank you very much, uh BJ for your time and for your wisdom and insight. And uh, as always, Chris, it's a pleasure. And so um, that's what I got. And uh, if you got any closing remarks, BJ, uh, I'd love to hear. Yeah, okay. Thank you. All right. BJ Walker, thank you so much for being our guest, and we look forward to having you back. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to I'm Black, You're White, Now What? You can find more episodes on the podcast channel Teaching What It Takes, available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. To learn more about the work I do, visit www.preparingthepath.com. And to learn more about the work I do, visit drchristherber.com. 